Well, we're going to continue in our Genesis series, so let's have our Bibles at the ready. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up in the air, and Stephen's at the back. He'll make sure that you get one. Keep them nice and high until you get a Bible. We're heading to Genesis 2. If you're brand new to the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We've been going through it now for a few weeks, and we've managed to get into chapter 2. So, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. We, we are moving forwards. Um, I want you to keep Genesis 2 open the entire time as we go through. Uh, there will be other texts that I will look at, but they'll be on the screen, so you don't have to rifle through too much. Uh, but do keep your Bibles open at Genesis 2. Last week, we rounded out the seven days of creation, or should I rather say, six days of creation and one day of rest. We learned that rest is good. In fact, it's biblical. As we rest regularly, we reflect the character of God and we focus our attention on the Creator Himself rather than on creation. Refreshment in the Lord will always be found when we rest. So you don't have to answer this, but how did you do this week? Have you been prepared for your day of rest? Are you looking forward to being renewed and refreshed in the presence of Jesus. I want to thank everybody who sent me a message to remind me on Monday to rest. I did my very level best to not reply to any of you. That was our massive temptation. Will he reply? Won't he reply? I don't know if I did the right thing, but I ignored you all and I had a good rest with the family. But remember, application is not me up here just stating biblical principles. Application is living out the wisdom that we find in Scripture. So I don't ask that question, how did you do this week, flippantly. I'm really asking, were you obedient to the Word of God? And are you going to rest today? As we continue into chapter 2 today, we take the summary of chapter 1 that we've been looking at and we delve further into detail in chapter 2. It may seem like a little bit of repetition, but it's not. God, in his wisdom, gives us a magnifying glass, one that exposes even greater detail in the creation narrative, specifically how mankind was made. And I'm going to leave that jar there the entire time. And as we talk about it, I want you to flick your eyes to there. Do you know what? Just so that we're not confused. I'm taking a wee Lego man and putting him away. Um, you can just look at that and you can imagine the detail as we consider how God made man out of dirt. What we will learn as we walk through the passage today is that mankind was created to be in relationship. Most importantly, we'll begin to see how that relates to God and how God gives a bountiful and precious context for mankind to live in. In other words, we're going to go from spectating over creation to experiencing and being lost in wonder, being captivated by the commands of God. So let's delve in together, heading to Genesis 2 and from verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. With verse 4, we begin a brand new section in Genesis, easily identified by the word generations. And the word comes from the Hebrew, toledot, which signals the beginning of a lineage or a narrative or a story or a new section. 
And so we're noting that as we head into verse 4, we're heading away from the seven days of creation in its chronological order into a new section where God is going to reveal more and more detail. We note that this section is different from the summary of chapter 1, and there are telltale signs throughout just verse 4. I want you to notice the order. Genesis 1.1, heavens and the earth. Then again, at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 4, heavens and the earth. Yet when we get to the end of verse 4, as we go into a new section, the order is reversed. The earth and the heavens. We're going to be considering the wonder and majesty of all of creation from the heavens to the earth. But now we want to understand the earth to the heavens. We want to figure out how mankind has a context to live in and how we live on earth and gaze to the heavens, which is the presence of God. We also see another subtle change in how God is described. Genesis 1.1, we have the word Elohim for the name of God, meaning God who is one yet more than one. But here in verse 4, we have the term Lord God. And in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh Elohim. We have moved away from gazing upon the creator God to seeing the Lord who cares for all of nature and who has a specific close connection with Adam and Eve. He is Lord over all, especially mankind. Although we know that we are in a new section, it is not new content post-creation, but rather a look back. I want to read this. We're going to read into verse 5, but let me read verse 4, and let's show each other the connection between 4 and 5, halfway through 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, verse 5, when. So this is a continuation. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Uh, I've commented through this series, I I think Henry Morris has been incredibly helpful in his book, The Genesis Records, and I think he specifically is helpful in understanding this section. It seems in creation we have a different hydrological system, Or in other words, a different way of managing the movement of water around the globe. Currently, right now, we have air systems, we have precipitation, and a circulation of water around the atmosphere. Yet in the original, where we are right now, it seems there is no rainfall. The earth was watered by evaporation and condensation. It's incredible, really. The temperature changes between day and night were enough to cause evaporation and condensation in such a way that rain was not yet needed. Of course, we know from the flood onwards, rain was an intrinsic part of the world, or or should I say, of the destruction of the world. Now, it may not seem important to labor on these verses. Who cares how the land was watered? However, they do give us helpful information We're on day two of creation. Notice, no plants had yet been formed and created. So we're on day two. We're we're looking back. We're seeing what's happening on day two. It could be a detail that we can just ignore, but I think rather importantly, we need to see that chapter two not only delves deeper into chapter one, 
but it reaffirms what we've already learned. The Bible itself backs itself up. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Well, we've gone from day two, three, day two, the land was watered, day three, plants. Are you thinking about the kids' talk? Yeah, good, good for you, Ola. <laughs> the plants on day three. And then we've jumped. We've skipped four and five, and we're now into day six and the creation of mankind. Incredibly, man was made from the dust of the ground. The first man was called Adam, and the Hebrew word for dust is Adama. Man is off the earth. Which immediately tells us that man is not immortal. He is made from created elements and therefore made mortal in the process. God showed great attention in bringing forth mankind. And notice that the Lord God formed the man. He shaped him and molded him. Like the potter molding the clay to become a crafted pot. So God molds and shapes man to take form. Several years ago, I was introduced to someone who does a chainsawing of trees and they can create like shapes in the trees. And this particular individual uh, took a stump from a tree and chainsawed it into an eagle. I remember looking at it going, you know, I'm a fan of chainsaws, chopping wood, burning wood. That's kind of my thing on my day of rest. But I was looking at this eagle going, I have no idea where to even begin how to do that. Take that thought process and then take dust from your garden and think, how do I even begin making a man from this? So do you see how God has authority then over our lives? He brought us into being. He shaped us into who we are. And he brings a sustaining life through his breath, the ruah, the breath of God. What we do, therefore, with our bodies and our lives matters to God. For God created us. And through this series, I've said a few statements that I've wanted you to remember. One that we matter to God. We are special to God. Our life has meaning. Two, we are precious to God. It's not just simple meaning. He genuinely seeks our goodness. And today, three, I want to say this. What we do with our bodies and our lives matters to God, for he created us. We live in a society that believes that you can treat our bodies in whatever way we like, whether that be a lack of care, too much care, or even a complete change to something that we would prefer. Don't be mistaken. God doesn't watch on indifferent. What we do with our bodies matters to God, for it is God that brought us into being. Put another way, uh, I'm a dad of three girls. Every so often you have crafts come home from school. Now, more often than not, those crafts have an interesting explanation attached to them. And it usually goes, Dad, what is this? And then you say, eh, give me a clue. Um, and it's never what I think it is. But imagine if I turned around to the crafts that came home and just tossed them off to the side. How do you think my girls would react to that? Not well. So much more when we don't care what we do to our own bodies. 
and give God a slap in the face when we just throw it off to one side. Man only became a living creature when God had breathed into him. God is the life giver. God is the life sustainer. And God is the author of the whole process. And therefore, it's not much of a leap and a jump to see that what we do with our bodies matters to God. We are his creation, his design. And we are who we are because of God. Let's continue in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the garden of Eden gives context for man to live. Here we have a place that acts like a sanctuary. Man can live in it, be guarded and protected. And you see, Adam may have been created physically mature, as all things were created physically mature, but there was still much for him to do and much for him to learn. The word Eden comes from the word that means delight. The garden, the sanctuary, would be the delight of man. And I want you to think about this for a moment, from just looking at a a kind of overview of the text. Adam was currently alive and he was to the west of the Garden of Eden. God created to the east the Garden of Eden for his delight. And having received the breath of God, I wonder, did Adam witness the creation of the Garden of Eden? I'm not saying he did or he didn't. The passage doesn't give us that. But just think for a moment. As Adam is somewhere in the land to the west, this place of delight is being created. Maybe his first experience of God was to watch this land of delight being made for him. But what we certainly know is a wonderful experience that came next. God lovingly picked Adam up and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that incredible? That God specifically designs, provides, and then places man in Eden the place of delight. He was bringing Adam full life. I've been saying this for weeks now, that we are to imitate the behavior of God that we see in creation. And what do you think is this that God is doing? We did it last week, and I sent an email out this week about it. Outrageous generosity. Do you see that? Adam had the whole world around him, but God made something for his delight. What was in it? Every, every tree that was good to look at and the fruit was great to taste. Everyone. Not just Adam, here's a few trees I'm sure you'll manage over the next few weeks. What outrageous generosity we see from God here. And I praise God that this week we got to experience that as we gifted our harvest donations to the school. What a privilege it was to watch the teachers truly astounded at the sheer level that we were giving. Before rushing on, it's thought that there are two trees that are named, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting, uh, we've been reading through um, the Bible at home at dinner time, and I said to the girls, you know, the tree of good and evil, and one of my girls went, no, 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 dad, 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not the tree of good and evil. So I was put in my place, so I've highlighted it in my notes. The tree of knowledge of the good of evil. The tree of life was in the center of the garden, and if man ate the fruit of this tree, then even though mortal, he would become immortal. It's a tree that brings life for eternity. The second tree often has a slight misunderstanding attached to it. Yes, it is a tree that bears fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. However, Adam already knew what was good, didn't he? He was in creation. And what did God declare creation was? Good. He had experience of God, making him the Garden of Eden, the place of delight. And God picking him up and putting him in a place that was very good. Adam knew goodness because he knew God and he knew creation. And therefore, to eat of this tree would not necessarily increase his knowledge of goodness. It would rather bring him knowledge of evil. I'm going to talk more on that in just a few moments. Instead, let's now go into verse 10. Um, before I read this, I've got to say this. Uh, yesterday at New Tries Mission, uh, we were there for a little while and I was having uh, quite a significant debate with one of the lecturers about the importance of some of the rivers that I'm about to read and uh, they, we, we, we didn't really agree on, <laughs> on where we got to. And I said to him, I'm going to read it out, and I'm going to try my best not to laugh, because we debated about it for three and a half hours. Um, and you'll soon see why there is an importance in rivers, but maybe not three and a half hours worth of a debate in it. But there we go, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and Onx, stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, or Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris River, the Tigris River, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We have one river becoming four, Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and the Euphrates. We have moved on since day two of creation. The river was now the source of the water that allowed the plants to grow and survive. And from these rivers, life in all of its fullness was sustained. And I want to just draw a simple parallel. It's not the same thing. It's a parallel to John seven thirty-eight. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I don't, don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying that the rivers of Eden are currently flowing through our hearts. This is a parallel here I'm making. We see here in Genesis that in God's perfect creation in the land of delight, life is sustained through water. We also see in John 7 that Christ produces in our hearts a living water when we come to him in all faith. So whether it's the water in Eden or faith in Christ now as New Testament Christians, both remind us that life can only be achieved through the Creator God. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Man was simply not to gaze upon his creation and relax at the riverbanks. We're told that God commanded him to work it and to keep it. To work comes from the Hebrew word abad, which can also mean to serve. 
To keep it comes from the Hebrew word samar, which can also mean to guard. You see, working and keeping the garden was part of man's purpose. It was not a means to an end, but it served as a foundational principle of care, of service, and of guarding what is precious. Last week, we considered how rest was good. In fact, it's commanded. This week, we see that work is good, and work is commanded. Now, for someone like me, I explained last week, there's a temptation for me to grab hold of that truth and run a mile with it. Work is commanded, 100 hours, let's go. Day of rest, I'll take two hours. You know, we can take this truth and we can run with it. Don't run with it today. I want to be clear here. We do not work to the point of complete exhaustion and then stumble into our rest. We work diligently, efficiently, so that we can take the blessing of a day of rest. I want you to see this. They are blessings to work and to rest. Neither should take more importance than the other. With man made from the earth itself, he is well suited. We are well suited to care and work. For there's always a link between mankind and creation. I think this isn't mentioned enough that there is a link between mankind and creation. There's a reason why we enjoy the sound of the sea or the view from a mountaintop. Promise Barnabas, I wouldn't men- mention Scotland. Not many mountaintops in Lincoln, but you all know where they are. Or a country walk at the weekend, or hearing the leaves fall in autumn. Because where is mankind made from? We're made from the dust of the earth. We're made from the place where we are to delight in. It is sin that's diminished this view in us. It is sin that has said, who cares? It doesn't matter. Malcolm played earlier about how we take care of our land. It is sin that says it doesn't matter. We'll live, we'll die, and who knows what happens with the earth. But I think we need to get back to the view of creation. That creation is our delight. It's our peaceful sanctuary. It's our joy. No, I'm not saying we should be tree huggers. I'm not saying let's go out and just, you know, praise the creation. That's not what we're there for. We're to praise creation. We're to praise God for the delight of creation. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I want you to notice the freedom that God gave Adam. It was a freedom of plenty, a freedom of choice. Adam was allowed to eat every tree bar one. It makes me think of uh, every so often we take the girls to the local shop. We have some pennies with us. It's more like pounds these days, sounding old. You know, Freddo is no longer 10p, is it? Um, But we take the girls to the shop and we say, hey, here's the sweet section. Here's the chocolate section. You can pick one thing. Boom, the eyes open. Whoa, so much choice. They always go to the biggest ones that are out of the budget. But so much choice. That's what God has done here with Adam. Every tree that is pleasant to see and pleasant to eat from, choose. There's freedom. There's just one tree Adam was not allowed to eat from. But notice, 
Not only had he had a freedom of choice in what he ate, he had a freedom of choice in his view of God. He can obey God and work his way through the many choices. I wonder how long that would have taken him every day to choose a different tree every day. Or he could disobey God and eat of the tree that was forbidden. You see, man was not created to be a robot. Man was created with free will. And so man was given the freedom to choose. There was every reason for Adam to choose to be obedient. It was not out of fear or coercion or even some form of legalism that secured his choice. God loved Adam and provided Adam a garden of delight, bountiful food, and life seemed on his fingertips. So choosing to take the delight, it's a fairly easy choice. It wasn't one made out of coercion. It was one made out of love. To disobey would be to show not only disobedience, but a lack of love for the Creator. Thank you, God, for all of what you have done for me. But this one tree, I think, is best. You're wrong. It would therefore bring him death. It is this life and death choice that produces a covenant with Adam. A covenant is a promise to be kept and honored, and it's always about life and death. If obeyed, Adam had life to the full. If disobeyed, Adam would surely die. I want you to keep those words, surely die, in your mind for the next couple of weeks, because we'll be touching on what the devil does to those couple of words. The covenant was made between God and Adam, and therefore it would be only Adam that could either keep or break this covenant. Well, with that, we've come to the end of our passage, and I'm going to give you a few application points. And as I said earlier, application is asking the questions, what can I take from this passage today? How will my life be transformed as I've increased in knowledge and understanding of the Word of God? And I've got just a few things for you today. Here's the first one. What we do in life matters to God. What we do in life matters to God. One of my favorite films in life is Gladiator. I've watched the extended cut, the extended, extended cut, the extended, extended, extended cut, you have no friends type movie. But there's a scene where the lead character, Maximus, a warrior and commander of the armies, declares, what we do in life echoes in eternity. From our passage today, I think we could say similar. What we do in life matters to God. I want to read to you Psalm 139. Sorry, it's a bit small on the screen. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intrinsically woven in the depth of the earth, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. From the beginning of time, from the first man to each one of us today, God has known us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our skills and our talents. He knows our desires. He even knows what your favorite food is. God knows us in a way that nobody else can. Therefore, each element of our life 
is important to him. Just as Adam had, we have freedom of choice. We can choose to live in such a way that honors God, or we can choose to live in such a way that is disobedient to God. And today, each one of us has to make that choice. For our life means something to God. Our life is precious to him, and therefore our choices matter to him. And maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you just think God doesn't care. Well, Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice this, while we were still rotten in our sin, that is when God chose to bless us. Not our sin, he didn't bless our sin, he blessed us with salvation through Jesus Christ when we had nothing to give God but our choice to look to Jesus and nothing else. That is the level of care. That is the level of love. That is a level of outrageous generosity that shows our life matters to God. Today, I encourage you in this. Do what pleases God, not what throws his bountiful grace back into his face. Don't think God is indifferent to your choice. Live in such a way that your life reflects the importance of each decision made before God. The second point I want to make is the Lord provides. Over the years, I've heard countless stories of missionaries having their needs covered, of churches that prayed and God provided, and I've experienced the wonderful provision of the Lord myself. Really sorry, Ben, for sitting at the back. I'm going to use you as another example this week. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed through the COVID pandemic, didn't we? Someone, please, with skills in online church, in media, come because we are at breaking point. And in a random meeting, random, Ben goes, hey, I got some skills in media. Could you use me? (laughs) Of course, you're in. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed for pianists. We have three. Please be praying for drummers. But the Lord provides. It's happened in my life so many times. When we've been at rock bottom and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And the Lord provides. Yet here's a stunning reality. I'm always surprised when he does. Why? Why are we surprised? Surely we can see in creation, before time was even settled, that God would provide for all our needs. More than just the needs, there'll be bountiful provision. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying prosperity gospel here. Pray, 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 and you'll be driving a Lamborghini. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is the Lord will cover our needs. Man needed nothing in the garden. All was at his fingertips to delight in. The Lord in his love provided for man's needs. Chuck Swindoll said, The matters we or the world might consider trivial, he cares about and wants to remedy. He longs, notice that, he longs to relieve our worries and has promised to supply our most fundamental needs. He longs to provide for them. How do we know this? Because he made a garden of delight for Adam. Too often we run around trying to solve every problem, don't we? 
I'm a problem solver. I do it constantly. Too often we think that our existence depends on what we do. Too often our lack of faith in the Lord's provision stops us doing what we're meant to do. God provided for Adam. He provided for Moses. He provided for Israel. He provided salvation for us. He provided for Paul in his missionary journeys. So why do we think he'll suddenly stop providing for our needs now? This is who God is. He's the great provider. I encourage you, trust in the Lord, for he provides. Third and finally, love not legalism, is the guiding principle of obedience. I was blown away this week by a simple fact. Love of God and his commands would keep Adam in Eden, delighting in all that the Lord had provided. It wasn't legalism. It wasn't about force. You must do this or you'll get nothing good in your life. It was a choice. Love me love what I've given you. We know this, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you see here? It is not, if you keep up great religious fervor, you will keep my commandments. Or you're known to read a book every day, you'll keep my commandments. Or you know the word of God inside out, you will keep my commandments. It says, if you love Let me simply ask this. Is your relationship with God reflected in how you live based on religious legalism or is it based in love? More than that, I think too often we use love in the reverse, thinking that love means we can do whatever we please and accept whatever behavior comes because that is the most loving thing to do. Actually, true love honors the commands of God. Why? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this week, love God. In so doing, obedience will not feel like a burden. Rather, it will be a joy and a delight. Uh, Let me finish just with this one small thing. A long time ago, uh, it's not that long ago, I shouldn't say that, uh, when Miriam and I were getting married, I'm so glad that she's in junior church. Actually, she's going to listen to this back. Sorry, Miriam. Um, A piece of advice that I was given. Base your marriage on your love for Jesus, not on your love for your spouse. I learned that reality through these last 13 years. If you have been married or you are married, you know this. There are times where you like each other. (laughs) There are times in life you're in disagreement and you're not really sure what to do. And if our love was just based on the two of us, it doesn't last. It doesn't flourish. You don't delight in it. But if I take the word of God seriously and I love my Lord Jesus and I know that he has guided me to my wife and that I'm to honor the word of God because I love Jesus then I will honor my wife, I will guide her, I will love her, I will respect her, I will make choices that matter to us together, I will kill off selfishness in my life so that I can live selflessly before her, 
suddenly, suddenly, you begin to delight in what God has done. It might be your marriage, it might be your children, it might be your job, it might be your studies, it might be your church. Don't base your love on the thing itself. Base on the love of God and keep his commands. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at yet another section of your account in Genesis, the origins of the revelation of our Heavenly Father and his plan for salvation. Father, I am humbled to see that what we do with our bodies and in our life matters to you. Father, as I say that, there must be countless things coming to my mind now of times where my body has not honored you and my choices have not honored you. Father, I pray that you forgive and you create in me and others that feel the same way this morning a desire to love you and to delight in what you have for us. Father, in a society that is searching for meaning in their life, help us show them you don't need to find yourself. You just need to find God. Because at the center of all of this, Father, we recognize one clear principle. Life to the full is only available through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that as a church, we will live in that way this week. Father, for weeks now, weeks, you have put on my heart to lead the church in an outrageous, generous time. And yet again, I look at your word and I cannot believe what you have done for mankind. You gave us everything we possibly could need. And we threw it away through sin. Father, let us not do that. Let us not be like that as a church. Let us see a need, give to the need, outrageously cover it. And let us reflect the wonder that is our Heavenly Father. Father, I thank you for our worship team today. I thank you for them leading us to this point. Father, I thank you for them guiding us to look at creation in the words that we have sung. And Father, just take this opportunity to pray for Paul this evening as he takes us back to that table and he takes us to that New Testament book of Galatians and as he teaches us the principles that are in your word so that we can delight in salvation through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for him this afternoon. Build him up, encourage him, give him energy, give him a desire to love you and to share your word. I pray this in your glorious name. Amen.